The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Since a lot of what we've been doing is uh, very heady and intellectual, um, a lot of this information flying around, you may feel a little bit cut off from your own moorings and as way up in your head, which we probably would not like to be in terms of actually thinking about ourselves as meditators. So in a few minutes, we're going to try to do a more grounding meditation uh, to uh, put you back down into those things that are more reliable, those, those go-to things that nourish and support you. Um, and also, as we move deeply into the subject about self and the sort of the evanescent nature of self, that undoing of that comforting illusion of self can feel as though the ground's opening up beneath your feet. That can, in a, you know, just on, on its own, be somewhat of an anxiety-producing experience. And so we need to, in order to be able to, to, to deal with that and to live with that awareness as it arises, we need to strengthen uh, our sense of reliable refuges, um, places that we know will support us and care for us. As, so it will be more easier, more enjoyable to uh, dissolve into emptiness, um, or at least as dissolved as you can get in a day long. Um, so we want to now focus in a sense on what's truly been reliable for you. Uh, each of you individually. And different people come to different things. For some people, it's uh, their faith in God or the transcendental. For some people, it's their faith in reason or Western science. And some people, it's both. Um, some, people, some people, it's the, the quality of their mother's chocolate chip cookies. I mean, there's, there's something reliable. And, he, and that's not necessarily a prosaic thing. Um, I like my mother's chocolate chip cookies. Props too much, but that's a different story. Um, and um, in Buddhism, you know, people can take refuge, you know, in, in the three refuges: the the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha as the possibility of enlightenment in this very human existence. The Dharma as the embodiment of the truth of things as they are and as they move forward. And the Sangha as in the collective. Uh, support of like-minded individuals uh, working with uh, with the uh, the Dharma in order to become the Buddha. That's that's the whole piece of it. So what we'd like you to do is to bring yourself to a place of comfort here uh, and kind of take up a meditation seat and identify for yourself several safe harbors, several refuges, things that you know you can rely on, things that have truth for you and that have meaning, things that you can feel your heart warm to. And then we'll, and then we'll go through, let's pick, say, four of them. Sounds like a large number, but you can, you, you can do one and just go back to it and back to it. But let's say you have several. And we'll go through four of them and give you a chance to take refuge there as an active practice so that as anxiety and fear arises, as it may during other meditations or even during other, th- other non-meditative experiences in your life, you have these as places to go to. 
So let's try this. Again, this is a guided meditation instruction. Please just uh, use the sound of my voice as suggestions. Um, If you're attempting to activate one of these things and it just doesn't come for the moment, that's perfectly fine. For right now, this is just an exploration. It's an experiment to see what works. It's another attempt to bring yourself into skillful means. So don't get, let yourself get frustrated or self-critical if your mind just won't evoke something in response to the suggestion of my voice. So take up your seat. Let yourself relax into your body on the cushion or on the chair. Let your body go quiet. Bring your attention to the breath. And a few minutes ago, I asked you to bring to mind some safe harbors, some refuges, some things that you feel to be true. Pick one as your first refuge. Let a sense of that refuge arise. A feeling, an idea, a sense in the body, of what this refuge feels like. Your gut sense. Of what it is like to be safe there. See if you can Get a sense of how it's wholesome for you to take refuge there. How positive it is for that refuge to have an influence in your life. How it shelters you. How it protects you. How it allows you to come from that place skillfully and compassionately. And perhaps now Let the words softly arise in your mind. I take refuge here. I find refuge here.
or perhaps let yourself without language feel yourself entering that refuge space the place in awareness where that lives And now, if you like, let that refuge go and move on to the second refuge that came to mind. Another truth for you. Let a sense of that refuge arise in your body. Feeling or idea, emotion. Again, feel the sense of wholesomeness there the shelter, the protection, the safety of that truth. And perhaps let the words arise. I take refuge here. I find safety here. Or let yourself enter that safe space of refuge without words. Finally, from those other set of refuges that came to mind, pick a third, or if you like, return to the first or second. Let a sense of that refuge arise. Words, words. 
feelings, body sensations. Get a sense of the wholesomeness of this final refuge. Of how positive it is to have this refuge influence your life. To come from that place of shelter and protection. experience whatever happens. And let the words arise. I take refuge here. I find refuge here. that space of refuge without words. for another minute let yourself stay in refuge and in safety So, hopefully a little more grounded. Um, let's take a little bit of a tour through this organ that is, enables us to have those experiences. Um, we're just going to talk mostly about some of the key features and activities of the brain. Um, recurring themes that will show up the, uh, through the rest of the day. First off, uh, in this 200-pound body, the the brain is only uh, three pounds. Uh, 
It's soft. Everyone's body is 200 pounds, right? Well, I know I'm selfing again, aren't I? Okay. Um, so in this, in this, however, fathom-long body, I'm going to go back to the That's Buddha. <laughs> That's right. Nailed me. Uh, the, the brain's about three pounds. It's about three pounds of tissue. It's got about the consistency of tapioca. It's got about 1.1 trillion cells altogether. And 100 a billion of those are the gray matter, uh, which are the neuronal cell bodies. And in the brain, which is sort of like that wrinkled pecan walnut, the gray matter is the skin that's on the outside of that, that goes into the valleys of the sulci and out on the, uh, and out on the gyri. That's where most of the action is for conscious experience. That's the computer processing chips uh, in the brain. Um, each of those 100 billion neurons has about 1,000 connections downstream and receives input from 1,000 con- neurons upstream. And those connections are called synapses. It's actually, there's a little dividing line between one cell and the next cell. The net result at the, at the synapse at each one of those connections is an on-off switch for the neuron that's receiving the input. It either says the a neuron, an incoming input at the synapse says, I want that neuron that I'm attaching to to turn off or turn on. And then the neuron body itself that's on the recipient end, what's called the postsynaptic neuron, summates all of that and says, I'm going to fire now or not, depending upon what all those thousand upstream people are talking to me. The activity. Each one of those neurons is always in one of two states. It's firing or not. Um, and the moment, moment summation uh, of these things winds up in this tremendous activity. Uh, your brain is so active that that uh, 2% of the weight of a typical person, depending upon whether you're 100 or 200 pounds, uh, consumes about 20% of the oxygen and glucose circulating in your blood. So the brain is, the, the, the body is expending a tremendous amount of resources to keep this thing going. Uh, there's no other three pounds of, of tissue in the body that gets as much in, that gets as much nourishment essentially from the rest of the body. Third characteristic is its speed. The firing rate of a typical neuron ranges between about 10 and 100 times a second. So the major brain waves that we can detect with an EEG oscillate around 10 to 40 times per second. Gamma is at the 40 end. Alpha is about a 10 hertz cycle per second. So to make it sort of concrete, immediate experience, in a half second it takes for me to clap my hands and have you hear it. Billions of synapses have been activated in every one of our individual brains. Uh, ongoing, just that one second. And, and this, this activity... Uh, there's pretty good research to say that there's sort of the, the, this activity results in kind of a, a, a framing effect on time so that we have 10, 10 to 20 mind moments per second and our brain kind of congeals and then, free, then opens up and congeals. So we have this about this 20 frames per second movie that's going in terms of our conscious experience. That's this very slow conge- kind of congealed stuff we call thought. So as busy as you think your mind is, in terms of thought after thought after thought after thought after thought after thought, the actual neurologic reality is much faster than that and is ongoing and it's happening constantly with all kinds of different circuits being activated. And fourth, 
<coughs> is a balance between specialization oops, specialization and teamwork. We talked a little bit about this a little bit earlier with, uh, on the break. The brain works through this exquisite combination of specialization and teamwork. Different parts of the brain do specialized things. For example, one part of the brain handles producing meaningful speech. It's called Broca's area. It's about the size of my thumbnail. And in right-handed males like me, it's about right there on the left-hand side of the brain. Um, that is... That's the area that basically produces the motor programming to express what I'm doing or to write what I would like to write out or to type it on the keyboard. Absent that, I'm not going to be able to do that. I may be able to understand. I may be able to come up with thoughts. But I will not be able to generate the motor subroutine programs to generate language like I'm doing right now. (coughs) There's another part of the area, which is a little bit bigger. It's about two thumbnails, and it's down and in back again, for me on the left-hand side, called Wernicke's area. It's in the temporal lobe. That's in charge of comprehending language. You take that away, and I may be able to jabber on totally nonsensically, but I will not be able to understand what you say to me. Um, There's also a dedicated system for processing faces to know whether this is grandma's or great-uncle Peter's cousin Susan. Um, That's on the other side. So there are areas of specialization. There are literally neurons that will fire up with uh, when grandma's face is shown on a computer screen. But all of these parts work together quite, quite intimately. And connectivity is the hallmark of the brain, which each of these neurons connected to a thousand others. And, for example, uh, when you have the... If I, t- if I touch the, tap, the, the tip of my thumb... The representation of that over the cortex in terms of different neurons that will get activated covers a tremendous piece of neuronal real estate. Some of it we think of as the little homunculus that you may remember from uh, high school or college biology of the representation of the primary somatosensory area. But there is visual space. There are neurons that actually process vision that's activated. I'll get to your question in a minute. That, that process when I touch my thumb. There's some auditory neur, uh, neurons that are primary for auditory that get some input when I touch my thumb. So there's a whole other level of connectivity and diffusion. It netly, basically it says that this connectivity results in a tremendously busy network system. And that, and if you look at at signal processing theory, a busy network that one's got lots and lots of stuff happening in it in various different ways is much more capable of processing signals than a very quiet, a very quiet network. So the Robert Heinlein quote of you know, specialization is really for insects, not for, not for uh, human species. And so information such as memory, (coughs) not just the primary sensation of the thumb, but information such as memory is widely distributed through the brain. It's not in one place. The holographic concept that (coughs) memory is distributed throughout the brain for long-term memories is probably more accurate in terms of the way we think about memory than it just being a point-to-point or single neuron. And under many conditions, if you have a stroke or head trauma or uh, a neuron dies in the ordinary course of aging, uh, other, far, other parts can take over the function of that if it's been damaged. Uh, so to illustrate this point about sort of the compounded nature of the brain and self, this is an MR image of self functions distributed throughout the brain. Every one of those little dots that's... Uh, 
that's up there, these sort of little dots with circles, is a well, process is a process that could be attributed to be self. What happens? What part of the brain lights up when my name is called? What happens when I think about my thumb? What What happens when I think about when I remember my children? Well, various different kinds of tasks. <coughs> and what we see is that self functions are distributed everywhere. It's not. It's not something that. Um, that happens in some place. It's not, although we have showed that side of the anterior cingulate earlier of this person who's deep in concentration practice, uh, that's, that, that anterior cingulate cortex, which is responsible for, for kind of the witness awareness piece in somebody in deep meditation, that's only one component. And it's really not necessarily something of self. Self is a widely distributed thing throughout the entire brain. The other major characteristic is its complexity. Whoa. What happened? One simple nerve. There we go. Yeah, headset's coming over. For me, one of the great ways to relate to this stuff is not as a kind of Nova special, but as, wow, that's inside my head right now. This is your brain on Dharma. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. So, okay, so we start with a simple neuron. This is a good schematic. Um, basically, the inputs come from that side of the picture into the dendrites around the cell body. Let's say they sum in such a way, all those inputs sum up and it fires, sends a signal down the axon to these little terminal buttons to a bunch of receiving dendrites from other neurons downstream. So it looks kind of simple, right? Well, it gets very complex when you've got 100 billion of these uh, neurons, uh, each one of which is connected to about 1,000 other neurons. So, and firing somewhere, you know, on the average around 5 to 50 times a second. Uh, what that creates, if you think about it, is if you have 100 billion neurons, which is to say 100 trillion synapses, each one of them can be on or off, that combination of possible brain states the number of possible brain states is 10 to the millionth power, which is to say one followed by a million zeros. To put that number in perspective, the number of estimated particles in the entire universe is 10 to the 80th power, one followed by 80 zeros. Compare 80 zeros to a million zeros. The brain, bottom line, your brain, my brain, is the most complex object known to science in the whole universe. More complicated than the Earth's climate, more complicated than an exploding star. Extraordinary complexity. One reason why I think, again, it will take centuries to really begin to get a grip on its, its mysteries. Um, what that complexity allows is a lot of circular processes. You know, A leading to B leading to C, round and round it goes. And that's a great simplification. Circular processes create dynamic, even chaotic systems. That's you know, another thing that happens in the brain, a kind of dynamic instability. Um, and it also is why uh, in the stream of consciousness, one thought can lead to another thought that seems completely unrelated. It's often because they share underlying neural circuits. So for some reason, the sound of a, let's say, a dripping faucet can take you right there to the smell of your grandmother's chocolate chip cookies. Uh, so you've got a profoundly complex system. 
Whoa. Oh, it keeps going. That's interesting when you push too hard. All right, come on. Okay, we're going to come back. These are like coming attractions, but we're not there yet. All right, almost there. Okay, good. So what? So what's the point of all this complexity? If you think about it, uh, here we go. The size of the brain is the result of a tension between evolution's desire to have a really capable organ. Two and a half million years ago, stone tool using hominids were surviving and running around the plains of Africa. Those are our great, 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 great grandparents. For me, that, that's how I kind of mark the beginning of human. If you can make a tool in a stone way, I can't make a stone tool. I don't know if anyone in the room can. That's pretty good stuff. Um, I figure you're, you got some game. But the brain of those Australopithecus were about a third the size of your brain today. About 400 cubic centimeters rather than 1,300, 1,400 cubic centimeters today. Evolution drove the size of that brain, but there's a competition there between the benefits of a big brain and mothers being able to walk upright and have a pelvis, in other words, that's big enough to enable a baby to be born with a big brain yet still be able to stand and and run around. Um, And so if you think about that tension there between the size of the brain, um, very driven by an evolutionary process. So... As you can see, it's a, it's a big, long run. It's often interesting how we don't really appreciate how long this game's been going. You know, single-celled uh, uh, creatures arose on the earth, algae-like life, um, about three and a half billion years ago. The first multicellular organisms about 650 million years ago. First mammals around 80 to 100 million years ago. Dinosaurs extinct around 65 million years ago. Uh, now we're moving forward into you know, ape-like ancestors 10, 20 million years ago. Actually, we have to correct that slide. It's about you know, what are called old-world primates, probably about 40 million years ago. Moving all the way forward to um, you know, our immediate stone tool-using ancestors and then essentially Cro-Magnon human, you know, modern humans, um, around 100 to 150,000 years ago. Right? Tremendous evolutionary run. Uh, it really helps to appreciate how long these processes have been going at it. To what point? What's the point of all this? Well, it's grandchildren. You're right. I actually want to make a quick point here. Most of the difference between us and chimps, our nearest uh, animal uh, relative on the planet, is in the DNA sections that code for the brain, and particularly the cerebral cortex portions of the brain. So it's really about, you know, like they say in real estate, it's location, location, location. You know, in evolution for human beings, it's about brain, 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 brain. Okay. So grandchildren, got to work on this. You know, if you think about it, because we live in hunter-gatherer groups, um, the evolutionary function, you know, DNA is very um, brutally simple. It's all about reproductive advantage, either through uh, direct survival benefits you know, avoiding death and promoting life, as well as um, what's called sexual selection. You're kind of hot in the hunter-gatherer group and more people want you. You know, that's Pete, you're a male peacock with a big tail, etc. cetera. Um, those are the two pathways that travel through reproductive or travel into reproductive advantage. In a hunter-gatherer group, 
where um, people bear and rear their young over long childhoods, it really helps to have grandparents around. So that's why I think, if you think about it, the kind of the function of evolution for human beings in an evolutionary sense is to have children who have children who survive. That's about the span of influence, if you will. Uh, it's very interesting, as a kind of a quick sidebar, to take a look at, at um, vertebrate evolution and then primate evolution. What have been the really driving factors? You know, very often people talk about, um, you know, are we are we driven really by ever uh, increasing violence, or are we driven by ever increasing capacities for relatedness? Number two is the right answer. For one, if you compare um, bird and mammal brains to reptile and fish brains who have equivalent uh, challenges in terms of their habitats to stay alive, bird and mammal brains are bigger. What's the key difference between reptiles and fish and birds and mammals? Yeah, so they raise their young together and they mate and they form social networks to do that. Exactly right. Um, the so-called computational requirements of finding a mate and, and that you're going to hang with to some extent and then raise your young over periods of time. You know, we're talking, you know, little squirrel babies and little sparrow babies. But still, you've got to have it together. I don't know how many of your parents are in the room, but I tell you the computational requirements in my household really rose when my wife and I had our first child. Uh, we came home from the hospital and looked at each other and said almost at the same time, now what do we do? You know, okay, it's a demand. And then you fast forward to primate evolution. There's a direct correlation between the size of the brain and the size of the social group. The bigger the group, you know, the more alliances, the more are you on my side or not? Who am I grooming and who's grooming me? Uh, the politics, the alliances, the eighth grade, you know, junior high school quality of a hunter-gatherer group. All that requires a lot of mental power, a lot of capacity. Actually, if you think about the big jump in brain function, a lot of it's been related to emotional processing and social processing. In other words, if you look at the big push through evolution, it's love, it's relatedness, it's empathy, it's the capacity to, you know, infer and, and deduce um, the um, intentions and state of being and state of emotion and the other folks that you're dealing with in your, in your species that has really propelled evolution. The people who are really good at that had, you know, grandchildren who lived to tell the tale. Isn't that just wild? It's great. Okay, so, oh, interestingly, uh, I should add that to some, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a real comfort that polygamous species tend to have the smallest brains. So I'll just leave that there. Okay, so now Rick's going to talk about the... Whoop, there we go. This is so... I don't know why it's doing that. This will be less and less of a problem as we work our way through the slide set. That's right. There we go. Okay, so here's this, here's this organ. What's its natural resting state? Um, when the organism is well-fed, unthreatened, pain-free, not upset, um, you haven't had to change the diaper on your infant 40 times in the last two hours, um, what's, what, do you, what, do you, what do we see? <coughs> it turns out that if you, if you record the electrical activity from the outside of the scalp, which is how you get an EEG, you see some what are called delta waves, which are one to three cycle per second, theta activity, four to seven, 
and some beta activity, which is faster frequencies, 14 to 30, mixed in. There also, you begin to process that EEG signal to try to look at which, which parts of the brains are moving together and which parts are moving independently. You get an increased um, uh, integration and coherence in the, in the parts of the brain moving together. So, in other words, the, the frontal lobes begin to oscillate at the same time. When you, for example, if you start looking and you record people making a decision when they're trying to decide um, uh, to push the left button or the right button, while they're trying to make that decision and you're looking at the coherence properties of these brain waves, it begins to look like a whole kind of jumbled cross-current, you know, jangled mess like you see in the bay sometimes when winds are coming from two or three different directions and the current is going in yet another. So you have this cross-current kind of quality. And then when you arrive at a decision, you can actually tell before, uh, uh, electrically a few milliseconds before the person actually pushes the button because all of a sudden there's this coherence. All of the brain starts oscillating together. Uh, so there's this large-scale integration in a kind of arrested, I've made the decision, I'm going to go with it, I'm going to be fine. So there's a large-scale integration and coherence in the brain. The second thing is that the parasympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system is more activated. So what happens there, uh, there's a big nerve in the neck called the vagus nerve. It causes your heart rate to slow down. It drops your blood pressure. It um, decreases the uh, gastric motility. Everything just kind of slows down and it kind of drops. The third, the third characteristic is that pleasant hormones and neurotransmitters. We talked about uh, dopamine and norepinephrine, but there's also a secretion of endorphins, serotonin, and a, a, a hormone called oxytocin, which is a, uh, a bonding hormone that, that begin to bathe the reward centers of the brain that rises when you tend to be in this relaxed meditative state. So baseline condition of the brain when it's, when it's not being dragged off by this, that, or the other thing is very, what, very much what people typically report when they're in a deep state of beingness in a meditation. It's awake, it's even-keeled, it's interested, it's benign, and it's fundamentally happy. So it's calm, contented, caring. This is kind of, kind of a basic, you know, biologically-based good news about Know, what the brain's resting state is when it's not driven by desire. And kind of an interesting statement. So it's really kind of remarkable that, that, that this, this organ that's been very finely honed by 650 million years in the Hobbesian world of life being nasty, brutish, and short, that that, organ, that that organ's natural resting state is a very calm, contented, and caring place. But we get we have a lot of hair triggers to disturb us off that resting state, that state of relative equilibrium. Um, we tend to have, to have tendencies to alarm, aggression, self-focus, and narrowing of consciousness. And most of us, because of the lives we lead, um, whether we're uh, primates crossing the African veldt uh, or trying to negotiate uh, the freeway on the way home, we live in a state of very chronic activation of these survival-based tendencies. And um, so everybody, everyone's brain is reactively vulnerable. So we actually th need to, to, to pay a lot of friendly attention to the brain as an expression of wise effort 
in order to get us back to that resting state. So we need to nurture the causes of, of, of its arising, the, the increase of its presence in our lives, and the continuance of the, this wholesome rest in consciousness. So we'll be focusing on, the, on those causes in the brain for the rest of the day. All right, questions, comments, and then we'll do uh, another meditation. Uh, microphone anywhere? There's one up here too. Okay, good. Do you uh, make any comments about uh, the brain? Uh, well, the different environments, different central nervous systems evolve. Um, <coughs> difficult to talk about what consciousness is for a cetacean, for a whale or a porpoise. They have to process a remarkably different environment. Uh, and so we don't, and we honestly don't know, and nobody's been able to do the the depth of experimentation on them to, to comment. Interestingly, in the humans, um, Cro-Magnon brain, uh, in terms of the size of the skull case, uh, the Cro-Magnon brain of uh, 70,000 years ago was about 120% the volume of the current Homo sapiens. Uh, I think as we have gain more dominance and have moved into a, a much more human-driven environment. Our necessity to process data has become, uh, has, has driven to, to essentially smaller brain cases. That may be one, that's one conclusion from that. The other is with the central nervous system that we presently inhabit has become more efficiently organized than the Homo, uh, the homo sapiens brain of 70,000 years ago. Two, two quick comments on that, just really fast. One is, uh, if you were to plot um, the understanding of the capabilities of infants against time, you know it's a rising curve. It, same thing with animals. You plot the capabilities that's, that's being understood of ravens, you know, monkeys, squids. Squids have a kind of emotional quality to them, actually. Uh, one of the sidebars in this is zookeepers know it's the animals that they name they give names, like they tend not to give names to snakes, but they'll give names to squids, to monkeys, to, to many mammals, because they have sort of, you know, emotional qualities to them. Anyway, I don't want to underestimate the capabilities of our animal brethren. I think it's a very important point. The other second point is how <clears throat> much the development of the brain is actually development by the, driven by the development of the body. I mean, the major difference, obviously, between the uh, cetaceans and the primates is cetaceans don't have arms, particularly. They have kind of flippers, but they definitely don't have much capacity to reach and to hold. And so much of the, uh, the evolution of the executive functions of the brain, the frontal lobe functions, have been driven around motor planning, which really is a, speaks to how much neural development and therefore the substrate of who we are is rooted in an embodied embeddedness in the natural world. Easy to forget, again, in modern life. We're so cut off from the natural world and we tend to distance ourselves from it. But even though we do talk about the brain as a kind of shorthand, we really mean the nervous system, by which we really mean all the intertwining systems of the body, the endocrine system, the digestive system, the immune system, and, and others. And then by body, we really mean an embedded ecosystem right. that itself evolved over time. All right. Uh, There's a real good book called Wild Minds that speaks to uh, to that in terms of talking about uh, 
yeah. emotional and intellectual properties of different central nervous systems. Yeah. And that really goes to the theme today of anatta, not self. When we start having a felt sense of our own embeddedness in the allness, you know, the immediate allness of other human beings, the larger allness of the natural world, the larger, even larger allness of the physical universe that enables, you know, the world of life to, to exist, you know, as a dependently arising, originating condition. It's very cool to just kind of let it all sort of go out there. Okay. You want the mic over there? Uh, back on the topic of uh, nerve conduction and the flow of information in the mind, um, is the current thinking still that it's all just like neural conduction and hormones, or is there any evidence at this point that there's kind of a energy broadcast, either electromagnetic or subtle, that and that mind kind of propagates as a field and could maybe even go between different uh, beings? It's pretty subtle evidence for that. And um, I, for me, it's a rising curve. I wouldn't bet against the nervous system. So that would be my short answer to that deep question. Uh, in communication, there's some pretty decent data to suggest that when I'm talking to you, 10% of what you're going to get is the didactic phraseology that I'm using. About 30% of it, actually three times that, is the emotional tone not the didactic, not the content of the words, but the emotional tone in which I'm saying it. And about 60% is perception of how my body delivers that phrase. So there's, there's in, just in terms of interpersonal communication, there's a tremendous amount that's communicated in ways that we usually don't give verbal labels to, which is how you can walk into a room and feel how people are because you're picking up signals from everybody. And it's, at, and, it's, and it's actually, as a social species, we pick those up in milliseconds of time and process them. Um, the question about whether or not there is a, a, shall we say, a transcendental field that goes from one individual or, to another. Or just an unknown physical an unknown field. field. Yeah. Um, at present, not answerable. We don't have the signal ability to measure. That's, you know, that, again, is... Could, could we have said with the M functional MRI has shown this localization of compassion neurons mm -hmm. quite, quite clearly in the last 10 years. Could you have said that there is a localization for compassion in the brain 40 years ago when we didn't have functional MRI? The conclusion of science would be, no, we don't know. We think it's there, but we don't know how. So until you get the microscope, you can't see the bacteria. The coolest thing that I, I knew about that personally was when I was an undergrad at UCLA, they were doing research on auras, and uh, they would basically hook up a, someone whose aura would be observed by someone who could see auras. I had a girlfriend who claimed she could see auras really well, and she sure seemed to, but anyway. And then the person seeing the aura would say what they were seeing, while unbeknownst to them, the... Um, different measures of the electromagnetic fields next to the body were, were, were registering things, and they were trying to see if there was a correlation between what this person was seeing and what the wires were picking up, and there was a high correlation with some people, and that to me is pretty cool. All right, we've got to move on. Any more comments, questions? On a more material plane, how about you? Okay. Uh, 
question about the uh, natural resting states of the brain. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you're aware of any research about uh, brain states uh, when people are underslept, not necessarily the brain states of sleeping, but uh, people like uh, people who are chronically under underrested. If we see different uh, brain states, and also about the process of waking up, uh, it seems to me that uh, as a non-morning person, actually just thinking about uh, a few hours ago, uh, that I experience a very uh, pronounced transition, a very prolonged transition from mm-hmm. sleeping to wakefulness, and other people who are morning people seem to have a very different uh, brain state, it seems to me. Oh, uh, and I'm curious if you know of any research about uh, brain states for, for being un- underrested and also just the idea of, of what happens when we wake up. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of research in, in sleep deprivation uh, studies on the brain. Um, basically, the, the, short, the short answer to that, if you're really sleep deprived, you have micro sleeps. You have, you have literally you know, half a second, quarter of a second nod offs. And there are a number of times that that's probably responsible for traffic accidents uh, for people who are chronically sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation is almost the exact opposite of a resting, contented, meditative state. It's a very jangled, adrenaline-laced, caffeine-driven position. Um, so I think that's the, that's the short, quick answer to that. Um, second question was just about the transition from sleeping to wakefulness. Oh, and the, di- and the difference between individuals. I think, I think there's no question <coughs> that there are tremendous differences in transition. There's the differences in the amount of sleep that certain people need and the differences in the transitions. Those are largely driven by brainstem functions and brainstem circuitry uh, that regulates the sleep-wake cycle. Um, the neurotransmitters that are involved there are largely norepinephrine and serotonin. Well, one last question, and we'll okay. do another meditation. Yeah, hi. Um, we have a 13-year-old son, and we're just wondering if there are brain differences um, with respect to uh, the benefits of meditation, for example, between an adolescent and an adult. You mean um, how could uh, meditation help an adolescent? Uh, yes. Are, are there differences uh, with respect to benefits for an adolescent in meditation versus for an adult um, uh, due to his developmental stage? Uh, A couple different things. One is that frontal lobes in the human are the last places to myelinate, uh, and there is uh, real good solid evidence that uh, that the myelination and the pruning of neural circuitry that sort of dials your behavior into the microculture in which you find yourself is something that starts to show up between 10 and 25. Um, <coughs> so a lot of that is happening while, while children are meditating you know, at, at age 13, 14, and 15. Um, I think quite clearly, uh, given the, the, the whole emotional hair-trigger cycling that you see in adolescence when hormones are influencing at the hypothalamic level the expression of emotions... Uh, it's quite clear that meditation is probably much more difficult for somebody at age 13 than it is for somebody at age 30. Our son did the uh, Spirit Rock uh, team program and also two retreats at a Bagheri. And the thing that sold him is 
I, I, I see a lot of adolescents and kids as a therapist, and I know that world. And uh, what worked was that they had purple hair and 17 pierces, but their eyes were clear. They looked you right in the eye, and that's what drew them into that world. It's you know, like kids, you know, it's subculture. They want to be drawn into that world, um, but it can only help. The problem is there's no longitudinal research on meditation. They have these snapshots of really mature meditators versus junior meditators, and that's the best they can do. Okay, that's good which is a shameless transition to a plug for the longitudinal survey on contemplative practice from the, Har- from the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. We are going to do, because we're brave and don't have an academic career to protect, we're, we're going to do the first longitudinal survey. And we're going to launch really soon, by the way. And so that's another plug for getting your name on our email list if you're not already there, because it would be really cool if you were interested at all in being a subject. But... You know, you got to think that anything that builds structure in frontal lobe circuitry and the capacity to do metacognition, to be, to think about your thinking, to be aware of awareness, uh, has got to benefit an adolescent, an adolescent, and also anything that's calming and soothing that strengthens, as Rick was saying earlier, their parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. Again, has only got to be good for an adolescent. Uh, okay, ready for a little exercise? All right, meditation. What we want to do here is actually start moving out into an experience of, if you will, the grout between the tiles. In other words, mind thoughts that arise in mind are like the uh, tiles. You know, this thought, that feeling, this body sensation, that sound, that's content. But what about the grout? What about the grout in which those different uh, mental contents, mind objects, if you will, arise and disappear. And what happens if that grout gets more and more spacious or it gets more and more significant compared to increasingly smaller and smaller tiles? So it becomes increasingly prominent in awareness is the grout itself, the open space of awareness in which mind objects move through. So that's what we're about to slide into here. So we're going to start with a happiness trip. So if you'd like to uh, get comfortable, you can do this with your eyes open or closed. As with all the suggestions, uh, go with what will work for you. And uh, if um, there's anything that makes you uncomfortable, feel very free to move into a different direction. So take a moment to notice your body. And get a feeling for your breath. If there's anything uncomfortable about noticing the breath, you could pay attention to something else that's benign, like sounds or sensation in your feet. Notice how your body is doing fine on its own.
Now recall or imagine a place you like being. Open up to the positive feelings that come with being in that place. Perhaps comfort or contentment. Belonging or safety. a sense of happiness. Okay, now recall or imagine doing something you enjoy. Perhaps eating something delicious or enjoying a smell you like such as oranges or the scent of someone you love or an activity you like a lot, cooking or playing an instrument. Any activity or activities that you like doing a lot Open up to the positive feelings that come with doing those things. perhaps a sense of happiness. Okay, now recall or imagine being with someone you like being with, or more than one person. Perhaps a friend, a family member, a child, maybe partner, teacher. (coughs) Anyone you really like being with.
open up to the positive feelings that come with being with that person or those people. See if you can even encourage positive feelings to fill you and strengthen. a sense of happiness. Let's take a minute to focus on and settle more and more into, however you can, a sense of contentment and tranquility. It's okay if it's more the one or the other. You're going after a deepening sense of peacefulness. It feels really good. Let's explore the open space of awareness. Resting in the sense of contentment and tranquility that's present, notice sounds coming and going like birds in the sky. Sounds appearing and disappearing in the open space of awareness. What Tibetan Buddhism calls the cognizing power of emptiness, the knowing capacity of emptiness, the open space of awareness. 
Notice the sensations of breathing. The cooler air going in when you inhale and the warmer air coming out. Stomach and chest rising and falling. Sensations coming and going, appearing and disappearing in the open space of awareness. A knowing spaciousness. Notice other body sensations coming and going like swells in the ocean, appearing and disappearing in the open space of awareness. Notice thoughts and feelings blooming like fireworks in the sky, disappearing, awareness remaining. Notice thoughts of self, sometimes only implicit, but present. Self, a content of mind like any other, flashing like shooting stars in the heavens and then disappearing. Self, coming and going.
Notice the space between thoughts, including thoughts of self. Just before and after each thought, an emptiness that is aware without any content present. Be aware of awareness itself, an open, boundless space in which thoughts and feelings arise and disappear. The awareness of awareness naturally comes and goes. If you try to turn awareness into a thing that you're aware of, It just becomes another content of awareness rather than awareness itself. Simply settle more and more into just being. Simply present. Notice the insubstantiality, the cloud-like nature of whatever appears in the mind, like clouds in the sky swirling and evaporating. 
recognize that because everything in the mind eventually disperses, you can relax and not cling to whatever appears. Letting contents of mind be what they are without moving toward or away from them. Resting all the while in the underlying space of awareness and its feeling of well-being. Coming back to this feeling of peaceful awareness, unattached to whatever moves through it if you get distracted. Resting as awareness, keep relaxing and keep letting go of any identification with a content of mind as me, myself. Keep relaxing and releasing any claiming any owning of a content of mind as my or mine. Explore softly labeling any content of mind as not me, not self, not fit to be regarded as I or mine.
rather than try to jump into talking about this, we thought we would segue into lunch right now and uh, take our lunch break. We really invite you during lunch to consider lunch as a kind of guided meditation, as it were, whereas lunch is a kind of meditation without guidance. And uh, during it, observe the increase and decrease of self. Observe it coming, you know, intensifying and constellating, and then it fading and dispersing again and again. And just see what you see about that as you walk across a room or reach for a cup or chat with a friend. Uh, we'll come back at, let's say, 10 after 1 by that clock. So we, it's about an hour. Uh, you're welcome to stay here and eat, although I believe you're supposed to do that in the non-carpeted areas. I think there are some restaurants nearby, kind of over there, a couple blocks away. And Rick and I will stick around here. Um, this is a good time, if you want to, to uh, sign up on the email list. There's also a little flyer next to it for an audio program I created about happiness, which you might want to look at, too. In any case, we'll be back at uh, 10 minutes after 1.